Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. Our guest today is leading the charge to bring hope and a sense of commonality among people at a time when countries, their citizens, and politics seem more and more polarized by the day. We see this all across Europe with the rise of far-right political parties proclaiming nationalist rhetoric. Societies are grappling to understand the rise of the us versus them narrative and the normalization of this narrative in politics. Many are trying to imagine what a counter-narrative could look like and whether such a counter-narrative would actually gain traction in an increasingly fragmented society. In comes Mathieu Lefebvre, who heads the Paris-based organization More in Common. Along with his team, Mathieu tries to develop and use positive narratives that tells what he calls the story of us. I sit down with Mathieu in his office in the heart of Paris to better understand the ingredients that create the us versus them narrative and the creation of the story of us and how such an approach can help us in our highly uncertain times. All right, Mathieu, thank you very much for having us and uh, welcome to the Global Futures podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with the big picture um, and look at the European context. We've seen the rise of uh, the far right parties uh, across Europe and this has led to, you know, polarization and division and hateful rhetoric uh, in society. You can look at Germany with the rise of the AFD, the alternative for Germany. Um, you have the UKIP, uh, United Kingdom Independence Party uh, in Great Britain, and you also see uh, nationalist governments coming to power in Italy, in Hungary, in Poland. Even in France, you have Front National that were real challengers to the highest office uh, in this land. Could you explain to us why is this happening across Europe? Yeah, sure. I think um, the first thing I would say is that I don't think... Uh, the rise of these uh, parties is the cause of anything. I think it's more of a symptom. Uh, I think they're exploiting uh, what is really a very unique moment that we're, we're going through. Um, I think what, what we're experiencing, which I think is very, very worrying, is a cocktail of different drivers that are mixing um, to amount to a very potent uh, mixture uh, and a very dangerous cocktail that is indeed. Um, and they're feeding into one another. Uh, I would mention uh, maybe five uh, ingredients of the cocktail. I think there is uh, a series of anxieties uh, that people are, are experiencing. I think, first of all, there is a, a tremendous degree of economic anxiety, particularly about around among segments of the population that we describe it more in common as the left behind or the anxious middle. They have tremendous anxieties about the future, about being left on the side of globalization, about the future of their jobs with artificial intelligence and robotization coming. So that's a very, very potent driver. But there's also very deep cultural anxieties at play. The world has changed a tremendous amount over the last 30 years, and change tends to create considerable anxiety uh, among, among certain uh, segments of the population. And that cultural anxiety in a place like France, or perhaps Germany, uh, in the United States and others, uh, crystallizes around certain groups at some moment. It could be refugees, it could be Muslims, but, it, but for some it's cosmopolitan. So there's just cultural anxiety at play. A third one 
which is uh, true, sadly, across Europe, is just uh, more, more of, a, of a physical anxiety around the question of terrorism. Thankfully, the, the, the series of attacks that we've seen in, in Western Europe uh, over the last few years seems to have abated, but for how long? And that fear of terrorism is very present in people who we've interrogated about that. But then there are other mixtures in the cocktail. Just very briefly, there's a clear and undeniable loss of faith in demo democracy, in democratic institutions. It's particularly concerning that the younger tranches of population seem to be far less attached to democracy and the values of, of liberal democracies and the institutions than older generations. That's very, very uh, potent. Final ingredient in the toxic cocktail is the fact that nativist parties, extreme parties, the one you were mentioning in your question, have risen in prominence. They have become better funded. They talk to one another. They're They're, they're better at exploiting social media, which I think has a role to play in, in the cocktail. All of these drivers mix together into what I think is a very unique moment and a very worrying one. It's interesting. You mentioned the nativist parties and, and, and the, the five ingredients in the cocktail. Uh, I can follow that. I'm still kind of asking myself, though, does this then make it normal to have this us versus them narrative, which we hear so much about. And it's almost as though there's a normalization of, you know, it's okay to talk about, you know, this is us and we're pointing fingers at them, those who are different. Um, are we coming to a point where we just have to face this and say, we just have to accept this now? Given the landscape that I just described, um, it is uh, normal that some political parties, to name just one, will revert to us versus them narratives, to breaking narratives for political gain. It's, it's very um, good terrain to do that, to make political gains. So I think they have been quite strong, if you think about the National Front in France, um, which I think is uh, the source of all of this. Uh, in many ways, because it has been around for 30 years. Whereas the rise of the AFD in Germany is fairly new, France has experienced a very prominent far-right party for at least 30 years. Jean-Marie Le Pen, the father of uh, the current leader of the party, was uh, you know, very astute at exploiting these anxieties that I talked about. So I don't think it's normal. Uh, I, I don't think we, we, we should accept it in any way, but I, I think it's understandable why. Because at More in Common, we use uh, um, a theoretical framework called moral foundations theory, which is a really excellent piece of work by um, Jonathan Haidt. And essentially, he describes the brain as having six, six taste buds. And he says that people who want to uh, promote bridging narratives, narratives of a bigger us, which is certainly what More in Common wants to do, are not very good at activating all of the taste buds. Whereas people like Marine Le Pen or the AFD are very good at activating all of people's mental taste buds, if you will, things around care or justice or fairness. And so they have been very good at exploiting this moment, but I don't think we need to accept it. I don't think there's any fatality in it. And I think if we apply new strategies, we can actually win back this terrain. Um, uh, I think we have left 
some of the key questions in this debate to these parties. And I think largely we've left the question of identity to identitarians. And I think that's a mistake. Let me pick you up on the greater us, because I know that's what More in Common is trying to do. Um, so the New York Times columnist David Brooks published an opinion piece uh, a few days ago on October 15th titled The Rich White Civil War, uh, where he reviews uh, a report that was published by an organization, More in Common, and the report is called Hidden Tribes. And in short, the study looks at political divide in the U.S. And I'm just going to quote him, so just bear with me for a moment. He says, progressive activists and devoted conservatives organize around coherent philosophical narratives. These narratives aren't visions of a just society. They are narratives of menace about who needs to be exercised from society. People with more stress live, in, uh, live lives necessarily pay less attention to politics. He goes on to say, unfortunately, people in the exhausted majority have no narrative. They have no coherent philosophical worldview to organize their thinking and compel action. You and More in Common are trying to do just that, finding a narrative of the greater us. Could you tell us how you intend to do that? Yes. Um, so I, I will preface my answer by saying this is very much uh, work in progress, and we don't have all the answers, uh, partly because we started More in Common fairly recently, uh, but partly because this is an enormous challenge. And I believe this is the challenge of our time. If we can't answer that question, we are heading for very dark times in Europe, in North America, but, but beyond. We see some of this at play in areas where we don't work, in India, in Turkey, uh, and, and beyond. So it's a global problem, and I think it's the problem of our, of our time. Um, coming to your question about how we intend to do that, uh, David Brooks in his, in his column about our work um, you know, points to something that is quite ob obvious, is that you know, the 8% on one extreme and the 6% uh, on one extreme, they have lots of time to be articulating and really pounding their views, whereas the exhausted majority, they're exhausted. You know, they don't have that much time. They're not that engaged. Um, so what we're trying to do is to really understand first and foremost what is driving people apart, what is tearing up American society in the, in the case of, of hidden tribes, in order to understand what can bring it back together again. So the first piece is about sort of research and insight. And um, we've asked, we asked Americans in that study, not about their opinion on events, but about their core values, um, how they think about parenting, how they think about fundamental things like that. And when you look at the world through that different lens, it starts looking very different and it starts looking a lot more hopeful. You start to see what people have in common and you start to identify areas of agreement among people. Um, and so it's the, that's the next step in our work is to really um, build narratives, not just us, but working with partners, and I'll come to that uh, in a second, that can resonate with that exhausted majority, um, which is very much in demand of new narratives, but very much dissatisfied with the, the us versus them, in a way, of the extremes. They're just, they're just switching off, but it doesn't mean they've switched off entirely. They're they're up for a new project, a new aspirational narrative. And so that's the next stage in our, in our work. I, I've got to push you a little bit more um, because I know also some of our listeners post questions on this. They're exhausted already. 
And yeah, maybe there's a need for a new, fresh narrative. But how do you, how do you then bring it to them? I mean, you've got all this information. How do you then feed it back and say, hey, guys, we know you're exhausted, but check this out. This is what we found. And guess what? You do have more in common. How, how do you ensure that they're ready to accept this? Right. So, so again, uh, I, I don't, if I had the answer to this, uh, uh, I, uh, you would all, we would all know. Um, so I don't. So it's a lot about uh, testing. I think we, we, we draw at more in common uh, a lot from the culture of, you know, a startup culture, like you test things, you test messages. And the way you do that is not directly, but through partners. And I'll give you an example. We have a very strong partnership with the Catholic Church in France. The Catholic Church came to us about a year ago to say, essentially, um, we're having trouble uh, talking to our faithful through our Catholic networks about questions related to immigration, refugees, Muslims, and so on. Can you help us? Through that partnership with the Catholic Church, we are seeing that we are drawing insights with them about how to speak about these issues to that majority. And so they are the distribution, the distribution mechanism, if you will. They, they have changed the way, they're slowly changing the way they're communicating uh, to people. And we're seeing signs of adoption of those messages by people. It's like, oh, well, if you speak about that in a, in a, in a different way, then I'm more willing to, to accept that. So I'll give you a... Couching it in the people's language in their kind of environment so they can accept that package right okay. uh, but but the key thing there is to work with partners and particularly partners who have access to um, this anxious middle that we've described this exhausted majority and who have a problem communicating with them so we want to help them so our strategy is really to go through partners i think um, civil society organizations, and by civil society organizations, I mean religious groups, I mean uh, trade unions, it could be football clubs, it could be TV channels, it, but it could also include political parties, although I think the role of political parties is, 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 has changed. Um, but uh, it's through them that we can, we can, we can get these messages out. And uh, it's through them that we can reach that critical point of scale, which is clearly our ambition. But again, work in progress. We haven't figured it all out. And once the message is out, what do you hope to achieve? What, how, do you, how do you assess, like, okay, this is, you know, it's working um, and that the message is out. What do you then envision people to do? Right. So again, uh, you know, uh, uh, we need to be very systematic in the way we think about um, our theory of change and how we how we want to impact the so what of all this research that we put out, basically. We need to be very systematic in thinking about that, but we also have to accept a degree of uncertainty. We just don't know how this is going to play out. Um, but things that we look for um, are... Uh, really signs that uh, the needle is moving quite substantively towards the celebration of commonness. Um, and so we would track things like uh, in, uh, how much people feel a sense of belonging, um, for example, uh, how people feel about newcomers. Uh, you know, uh, we were really, really struck in, in a place like France that only 16% of people in France say immigration is a good thing. 
we would like to contribute in a modest way through our partners to moving that number up quite a lot in the next five or ten years. Um, so I think we need to be very rigorous about the KPIs we apply, etc. But we also need to keep in mind the big picture. Um, we think that because this is the challenge of our time, it re requires a new response. Um, and that is by definition experimental. If current responses have been working, we wouldn't be in this situation. So we have to accept the fact that we need to chart a new course. Let's focus on France for a little bit. You mentioned earlier that uh, France is a country that has dealt with nationalistic, um, populistic politics for quite some time, for 30 years or so. And uh, so we know it's been dealing with these questions of polarization and integration for a long time. We see, you know, this ghettofication of areas outside of Paris. There's been big debates about the headscarf, um, the refugee movement, uh, or crisis, if you will, since 2015. And even after France won the World Cup, I'm sure you, you've heard like Trevor Noah coming on the, 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 sorry, the Daily Show and saying it's not just a French victory, it's also an African victory uh, because so many of the players um, are French nationals but could have played for other countries. And this really triggered a lot of debate about identity, about integration, about culture, politics, things that you've named uh, already. France seems to be a particularly intense case when it comes to these issues of identity and integration, uh, which lead to political polarization. Why is that? Mm, yeah, France is a very particular case um, in all of these things. I, I will start by saying, though, that because France is quite idiosyncratic uh, in its approach to questions of race, for example, it's quite unique. The French model is quite unique. It is often uh, quite misunderstood outside uh, France. Um, for example, the fact that France does not collect ethnic data, which is... Really, the best way to understand the French model is is, is that because they're, they're the principle, which I think is in theory a beautiful principle and one we should aspire to, um, is that uh, one of color blindness. Um, I the the American uh, Afri African American uh, writer and thinker Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, who lives in Paris, writes about this really beautifully. So France is very idiosyncratic, and it is often very misunderstood from the outside. The debate after the World Cup about African players was a debate largely um, outside France. Inside France, that was not so polemic. Partly because when France won the World Cup in 1998, there had been enormous hope placed in this team that it would solve the problems of France. Um, through something that was called La France Black, Blanc, Beurre, White, Black, and Arab France. This new team was going to solve everything. It didn't. So this time around, nobody in France placed tremendous hope that the victory of this beautiful multicultural team uh, of French men um, was going to solve anything. So the, the polemic was really outside of France th this time around. I think that that's important. But nonetheless, France is uh, quite, uh, sp ha has quite specific circumstances which explain why these issues and the National Front 
and, and, and the statistic about immigration that I was mentioning earlier arise. I'll just name a few. Um, I would say, um, first and foremost, very prolonged unemployment has done tremendous damage to, to France's social fabric. Uh, you know, we've had 30 years of high unemployment. It's slightly better now, but still. I think in these factors, it's definitely not just the economy stupid, but it would also be wrong to say that the economy does not play a role. It plays a big role. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I think there is a strong perception in France, I think partly wrong, that integration of newcomers has not worked over the last 30 years. So... I was quoting earlier the figure that um, only 16% of French people think immigration is a good thing, where in a country where roughly 30% of people have one immigrant grandparent. This is a country of very high immigration. Um, so there's something wrong if you compare those two figures, 16% and 30%. Essentially, you know, half the respondents don't like their grandfather. <laughs> I mean, just to, you know. Um, and that is not because... They dislike the arrival of uh, immigrants, and particularly immigrants from North Africa of Muslim uh, culture. I don't think that's quite it. I think it's largely to do with the fact that people don't think the French integration machine has worked. I think that is partly wrong, and I think we need to celebrate cases of successful integration. Um, it's very striking to me and something that is not celebrated in France that France has some of the most diverse governments in Western Europe. If you look at the cabinet, it's extremely diverse. Uh, at one point, the mayor of Paris and the prime minister of France were both born in Spain. That doesn't happen everywhere. The current mayor of, of, of Paris is, was born in Spain, only became French late in life. Um, those things need to be celebrated because I think the integration machine in France actually works quite well. And then there's the question of secularism, laïcité, which is very specific to France. Uh, the relationship with uh, religions is very specific to France. I think just on that, in principle, just like the Republican model I was alluding to earlier, in principle, the French model is arguably quite good. In practice, often laïcité is weaponized against Muslims uh, because, as you know, France has the largest Muslim population uh, in, in Western Europe as a pr proportion to, of total population. So all of these things make France, I would say, first of all, a very interesting case to follow, um, but also a very specific one. You mentioned weaponized. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Well, um, the concept of laïcité, uh, which uh, dates back uh, at least 100 years, um, is uh, basically uh, about the separation of, of the church and was about the separation of the church and the state, or more broadly, the, the separation of religious religion from public life in France. So it uh, is the principle behind uh, the fact that uh, students cannot wear the veil in public schools until you know, they graduate from what is high school. Um, that principle of laïcité uh, is, does not mention Islam spe specifically. Obviously, it is about all religions. But I think the far right has used it in a way that many people in the Muslim community in France feel that it is especially turned against them. 
that it is a principle that is used against them unfairly. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think it's being exploited uh, by some on the far right against a particular group, which is to the detriment of the principle, which I think is actually quite a sound principle, but that its application is deeply flawed. So you mentioned earlier um, that there is no collection of ethnic uh, background uh, in, in the census in, in, in France, and it's a celebration of colorblindness. And I'm sure some of our listeners would say, well, you cannot deny that there is racism in France, as there is in every every society across the world. Um, there is colorblindness uh, that is to be celebrated. You cannot deny that there's racism. And at the same time, you know, France has a history of colonialism across the African continent and beyond. Uh, and there's, you know, you, we see refugees coming in since 2015 for all sorts of reasons. And so this makes it a very, very complex environment in which to bring together a common narrative um, and also values that are integral to France and French uh, society. How do you do that? How would you, how, how does your work, let's say, focusing in France, how do you intend to bridge these things that are so vast and so different and so complex and diverse and beautiful, right? But it doesn't make life easier for you. No, it certainly doesn't. Uh, and But again, I mean, the reason why I get up in the morning and our team gets up in the morning is because we are convinced that unless we, we and many, many others embark on this journey, uh, we're headed for trouble. Um, so just because it's very complicated doesn't mean we, we don't need to do it. We absolutely must do it. I think um, the, yes, certainly France is particularly complicated. It's colonial history and, and all the other factors that I mentioned earlier uh, make it a per particularly uh, complicated place. But in fact, if you look across the four countries where more in common works, but it's true for all countries, each country um, has uh, its specific complications and factors. This debate, which is why we have national teams working in the US, in the UK, in Germany, in France, is a national debate. There are commonalities that I tried to sketch uh, at the start of our conversation around the cocktail of anxieties, but these factors are very national. You cannot talk about the question of immigration or integration or identity the same way in France and in Germany, for example. And I think Germany has equally complicated landscape. It's just different factors, you know. So I think what we try to do and why we have excellent national teams is to look at the specificities. So if I give you an example on France, we've tried to understand what are the attributes of a good narrative in France. And those are very different from the attributes of a good uh, narrative elsewhere. I'll give you a, a few uh, results uh, of, of the work of our team in France, which has been doing really, really good uh, framing around this. So um, they have found four factors that need to be part of a good narrative in France, and they're quite specific. Um, so none of this will surprise you. The first thing is that the French love a savior. Um, there is a tradition of uh, verticality in France, Think of uh, the great leaders of France, Napoleon, de Gaulle, and right down to our current president. There's this notion that one man, it's called in French, l'homme providentiel, 
providential man, one person. Unfortunately, it's usually a man. I wish it were a woman uh, soon, but um, uh, there's that concept of a savior. Then there's a notion of uh, universality. France, for better or worse, has aspirations of itself as a universal nation. And this comes from the Enlightenment, from the French Revolution, from uh, much of the theor theoretical work around human rights, which, was, which comes from France, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. France, a, f a winning French narrative must be universal. It cannot be local, it cannot be national, otherwise it doesn't get people fired up, you know. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. That's the frequency that a good narrative works in France, for better or worse. Two other quick ones is um, there has to be a reference to a golden age in a winning French narrative. You have to, to mobilize people around this concept of, of a golden age. And then the final one, which I think is common to many countries, is that there has to be some sort of a burning platform. You have to tell people that there's some urgency, that it, this must be the narrative of now. So those are some of the things that we think about. They're quite theoretical, but actually when you start to apply them to different cases, you can check off, like, have I ticked off these, these four boxes? Um, and I think that would be very different. Um, in other places. For example, in Germany, my understanding is that universality is probably not part of the mix for very obvious reasons. So it's it just, it's different from, from country to country. Great. Let me just pick you up on, on that. So you mentioned more in common works in four countries and that there are similarities in the challenges that these countries face when it comes to, you know, the rise of the right, etc., etc. You mentioned the cocktail of, you know, these four or five potent ingredients. My question is, is there a common approach that you've also identified that could lend itself to all four countries? Or are your recommendations on how to go about a greater us narrative very localized? So I think um, it's common in, in, in the, the principles of it. Um, we try to look at the world in a different way to go beyond the, the, the polarized landscape, but to uh, apply the lens, for example, of core values, which we've do just done in the U.S., that we would do across the spectrum, although obviously the questions we ask and the results will be very different. Um, and then the strategy we apply, sort of looking for that narrative of a bigger us, um, but also making it very applied um, through experiences of that bigger, bigger us on the ground, those principles apply to all the countries. How it is done differs on the ground. Um, the language you use is, is, is different. For example, the word community has very positive uh, connotations in some languages like English. It has rather negative connotations in other languages like France. So we wouldn't apply those things just universally. Again, the key is that winning hearts and minds on this is done at national level. Arguably, maybe in, in the case of Germany or in the United States, at local level. Maybe it's a Bavaria story or a Tennessee story and not even a national story. So while we have common principles, we apply them in very different ways in the four countries. We have a couple of questions from our listeners. Um, let me just start with the first one. I'm just going to read these out loud to you. The first question asks, I would like to know the main reasons for growing polarization um, in France. Are they more from the evolution of the political system or political uh, ecology in France itself or from other external changes, such as slowing down of the European integration process and voices against globalization and international community? 
It's a good question. Um, I think, uh, unfortunately and predictably, my answer will be, of course, both. They play into one another. Um, so I was talking about in the common cocktail of insecurities earlier on, things like globalization uh, or the evolution of the political system with a loss of faith in democracy and better resourced, more networked um, far-right parties, for example. That's common, and you see it in France very strongly. France's uh, a country that's very tied to the global economy, so it 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 it, it suffers from from that cocktail of, of anxieties. But I do want to pick up on the on the point about Europe. Um, I think uh, we are um, coming up to a very critical elections in Europe, uh, and I'm quite worried about that. I think. Um, Part of the solution to all these issues that that we've been talking about um, lies in Europe, but we need to um, get people excited around a new new European narrative. I slightly worry um, about the current framing um, from President Macron and others of these elections are about us, the good guys, you know, the, who fight for openness and liberal values versus. Salvini and Orban, the bad guys who want nationalism, etc. I slightly worry about that frame, if I'm quite honest, because in that movie, I'm pretty clear who the bad guys are. I'm pretty clear what narrative they're pushing. I'm pretty clear what myths they're activating. I'm less clear about the good guys. And I think it's quite dangerous to put yourself in a good guys versus bad guys frame if you're not exactly sure who you are. And I worry that the pro-European camp is disorganized right now. And that plays out in France, certainly. The second question says, is the whole us versus them narrative something new? Or if by saying this, and that this is new uh, and unpre uh, unprecedented, we are revealing the luxury of our own positions having never experienced this before. So if you speak to, for example, people in uh, marginalized parts of the US and even other parts in Eastern Europe, they would say, well, this isn't new, this has always been happening. Um, and, you know, what is the whole us versus them? We, that's our day-to-day -day, um, experience. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's a very, very valid point. And I think your listener is asking a, a very uh, good question. Um, I think there has always been us versus them. Uh, I think um, some groups have felt that a lot more um, uh, and for a much longer time. And it's very important that we recognize that and actually engage in more active dialogue um, with, with, with these groups. Um, I think there is a moment of realization now particularly in uh, among progressives and what we call in our U.S. study progressive activists about the fact that they, maybe for the first time in a long time, are very marginalized on a lot of questions. They're outliers on a lot of questions. So it feels new. It feels like a new move moment to a lot of people. But in fact, when you, when you look at the experience of other marginalized group, historically marginalized group, it is not new. Um, so it's a very good point. However, coming back to something I said earlier, I do think we are experiencing a bit of a unique moment in the fact that all the cocktail, the, 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 the potency of the cocktail I was talking about around all the anxieties we're feeling seems to me, but maybe I'm wrong and I have to acknowledge that I'm speaking from my own purview, seems to me like it is, has reached a, a, a level that is quite unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime, but probably for, 
for for uh, for a while um there's just some new factors at play um to take one which i think is an important one uh social media you know just just is a fairly new phenomenon and it really does contribute there is a business model in social media of polarization they make money out of polarization uh, a columnist uh this week uh writing in a newspaper in the United States about our work said, Twitter is the sound of the 6% talking to the 8%. You know, there is something there and that is quite new. Uh, so, yeah. Mathieu, unfortunately, our time is coming to an end. Uh, but I would like to say uh, we wish you all the best for more in common. Uh, we know it's great work you guys are doing and uh, keep us posted um, and we'll keep our listeners posted of what comes out. And uh, yes, thank you very much for joining us on Global Futures Podcast. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugrobova, with support from Jill Van de Valle from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Mathieu Lefrovre. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other products, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.